Happy uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, we are reading out of Mark chapter 11 today. And for those of you who are familiar with, uh, with Passion Week, you know that on Palm Sunday, typically you might hear a sermon from uh, a passage that talks about the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, today I wanted to kind of change it up just a little bit. So we'll actually be reading and, and thinking about uh, what Jesus does immediately upon entering into Jerusalem. So we're gonna go the episode right after the triumphal entry. In Mark chapter 11, uh, we'll start at verse 11 and we'll read up to verse 17. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's also projected for you here. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. I'll read this for us. Let's give our attention and reverence for this is God's holy word. And he, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. This is God's word. This passage that we read today, it's kind of a favorite amongst Christians because uh, you get to see kind of a different side of Jesus. You know, it's, it's a little bit different from the usual nice guy Jesus that we often see, uh, we often envision or see depicted in pop culture. We get to see an angry Jesus, right? a Jesus that overturns tables, a Jesus that's driving, chasing people, kicking people out. And I feel like especially uh, men, kind of like these passages, these, these stories, because uh, it's kind of a manly Jesus, or at least a stereotypically manly Jesus. And we get to see Jesus being angry. It's, it's unusual to see him angry, and, and it's, it's puzzling even. It, it, it gets your attention, right? When someone you don't really see ever angry before, and then you see him all of a sudden angry, it gets your attention. You say, well, what's this all about? What's this all about? And then we see another story coupled here by the Gospel of Mark, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is seemingly angry again, another slightly puzzling story where he's angry about this fig tree. And so as we explore this passage, we have to ask ourselves some important questions to get. What, what's going on here? What is this telling us about Jesus this Palm Sunday? First, we have to ask ourselves the question, quite simply, what made Jesus so mad? Why is he so mad? Why is he mad? What's he mad about? And to understand this, we have to ask ourselves what's happening in the temple. There's people selling pigeons and other items for the sake of making uh, various sacrifices. There are people exchanging coins uh, for the sake of paying a temple tax during the Passover season. And here's the thing to note. What these people are doing, there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Right? These items, these pigeons and other items, they were necessary to make the sacrifices, especially for people who are making long journeys to the temple. They weren't going to bring a pigeon like so many miles on a, you know, on a, on a long journey. They, they needed to buy these. Even the temple tax was required from the book of Exodus, chapter 30. 
This was not something, these were not bad things in and of themselves. And the popular understanding of why was Jesus so mad, the popular interpretation, the popular opinion is that Jesus was mad because these people who were selling, these people who were exchanging the coins, they were ripping off the worshipers. They were corrupt. After all, Jesus says, you've made my house into a den of robbers. That's the popular understanding, that that Jesus is mad because of this sort of corruption. They're taking advantage of these worshipers. And I want to actually agree with the commentators and scholars who disagree with that. I'm of the opinion that that's actually not the main thrust of what makes Jesus so mad here. He's not mad because of specifically of what they're doing or even because that it's corrupt, corrupt what they're doing. How do we know that first? Well, he throws out not only the sellers of these items, but he also throws out the buyers, right? Mark makes that very clear. He throws out the buyers and the sellers, the sellers and the buyers, And obviously the buyers, they're not corrupt if the sellers are corrupt. Secondly, the phrase den of robbers that Jesus uh, quotes here, it's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet Jeremiah is actually not denouncing stealing and robbing or swindling. If you read that passage in Jeremiah 7, he's actually denouncing hypocrisy very generally. He's saying, you guys do all these different things, these different injustices, But then you come to the temple. And I like what one commentator says. He notes that a den of robbers is not where robbers steal. The den of robbers is not the place where they do their their dirty, um, corrupt actions. The den of robbers is where the robbers feel safe. The den of robbers is where they go. They retreat to after committing their crimes. And so the idea is... Jesus is not saying that these people are all robbers. That's why he's kicking them out. And then, of course, there's the fact that this story is coupled with the story of the fig tree. And we can't ignore that. The juxtaposition of these two stories is is too hard to ignore because Mark specifically, he does this interesting structure where he mentions the temple first, where Jesus enters the temple right after entering into Jerusalem. He does a little bit of reconnaissance. He looks around. What's going on over here? And then we go to the story of the fig tree, and then we go back to the temple, and then we didn't read this, he goes back to the fig tree. So we see temple tree, temple tree, and we can't ignore that. These are interlaced stories. Their meanings are interlaced. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's going on with the tree? Why was Jesus so seemingly upset about this fig tree? Jesus is hungry. He sees a tree in the distance, and it says, it's in leaf, it's a very leafy, it looks like it's you know, alive and it should have fruit and he goes up to it, finds no fruit inside and then curses it and it withers up and dies. What's going on here? This is an interesting story too. It's almost humorous and silly if we don't really get it properly. It almost seems petty, something you might see in like a cartoon, uh, irreverent cartoon depicting Jesus. One commentator even calls it a waste of miraculous power. Like Jesus, is Jesus just hangry? Right? He's just hungry and irritable. And then so when he finds no fruit, he just curses it. And then so he's still hungry. By the time he gets to the temple, he's even more hungry and hangry. And then he drives them all out. Is that what's going on? I know, I, I personally know all about being hangry. I'm very good at being hangry. Just ask Priscilla, she'll, she'll tell you. And I'm kind of reminded of those Snickers commercials that say, uh, you're not you when you're hungry. You're not you. 
Is that what's going on with Jesus? He's just not being himself because he's hungry? And of course, I'm being a little silly here. Of course, that's not the reason, right? The reason that Jesus curses and is upset about this fig tree is not only because it doesn't have fruit. It's not just because it doesn't have fruit. If he saw a tree that was like all dying and fruitless, he wouldn't curse it. It's because this tree had the leaves that advertised fruit while not having fruit. The problem was it had the leaves, but not the fruit. And the same thing is going on in the temple. The actions of the people in the temple, their actions revealed they had the leaves of religious activity without real fruit. After all, these were religious activities, right? The buying and selling that was going on in the temple, right? What were they buying and selling? They weren't, they weren't selling uh, DVDs in the temple, right? They weren't selling um, fidget spinners. Is that still in with the young people, fidget spinners with the kids? They weren't, and they weren't selling drugs in the temple. They were selling items explicitly for the worship of God. These were good things. Even the exchanging of the coins for the temple tax, that came from a place of reverence and worship. The idea was, uh, if you, you, know, you had to pay this temple tax, that's from the Old Testament, but these coins, if you're, if, you're, if you're from Rome, these coins have inscriptions on them that praise Caesar. And the idea is it's not appropriate to give these as the temple tax because they have the praises of a pagan ruler on there. So you had to change the coins. It was coming from a place of worship. These were all religious activities. These were not bad things. But what we see from the connection with this story and the fig tree as well as Jeremiah 7, where he denounces the hypocrisy of the temple worshipers, is that Jesus is ultimately angry because there's all this religious activity, but their hearts aren't really there. There's all this leaves on the outside, but no fruit on the inside. They had let the hustle and bustle of, of all this business pertaining to worship, crowd out the prayerfulness and the reverence that are the fruits of genuine worship to God. They were doing all the right things on the outside, but Jesus could see the attitudes of their hearts. The prophet Jeremiah, as well as Jesus, they're denouncing this sense of false security. Remember I mentioned the whole thing about the den of robbers. That's the place where you're safe. You go there and you say, well, I'm good here. I'm safe. Right? They thought that since I'm going to the temple, this is the temple. Since I'm, going, I'm giving the right coins, right? They're not the ones that have Caesar's praise on it. And since I'm making the sacrifices, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, that's not all it is. That's not what it means to know me. That's not what it means to worship me. And I pray that for you and for me, that wouldn't be us. Because this is a warning. This passage is a warning for me and for you. That it is possible for all of our religious activity to crowd out actual worship. It's possible to have the leaves of church attendance, which we're thankful for, of course. The leaves of learning theology, which is a good thing. The leaves of serving. You know, we just had the volunteer service an hour ago, and, and we're so thankful for all of them. It, but it is possible to have all those leaves and not have fruit. And Jesus wants fruit because he wants your heart. He wants to change you from the inside out. He doesn't just want these pretty leaves. He wants you to be a tree that has leaves, yes, but fruit and leaves. 
And so the question, the next question we get to is, how do we get there? How do we bear real fruit? I'm sure nobody here says, you know, I'm okay with leaves. I'm okay with just appearing to do religious activity. No, we all want fruit, right? We all want real change on the inside. Well, how do we get there? How do we get the real fruit of real worship, of genuine, sincere religion? And of course, I'm not using the word religion as if it's a bad thing. You know, these days I feel like that's kind of a bad word, religious, right? If someone calls you religious, you might take offense at that. Oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. But you know, religion is a good thing if it's real, if it's genuine, if it's sincere, if it's not just emotions, if it's not just dry and cold and dead. And Jesus wants real religion. You know, one thing we can credit millennials for, of which I'm one, I'm kind of this weird half-breed. Depending on what you read, I'm either a millennial or a Gen Xer, so I think of myself as half, half Gen X, half millennial. And so I can make fun of millennials a little bit. Um, I'm allowed. For all of our flaws, and there are many, there are many things that people like, especially older people especially, like to criticize about millennials. The, the one thing you can credit millennials for is that we love authenticity. Right? We love for things to be genuine and sincere, not fake, real. And that's a good thing. And you know what? Jesus is like that too. He's showing that here in our passage today with the fig tree as well as the temple. He is zealous for that. Even to the point of getting angry and overturning tables. He's zealous for genuine worship. He's zealous for religion that is real in your hearts. But the fact is, we can't have real religion for God without real relationship with God. I know that might sound so basic in our understanding, but so easily we forget this. We can't do all these things for God and worship God and and serve God and do all this stuff without real relationship with God. Or at least it won't be real. Because it's possible. It's possible to have religion without relationship. That is possible. It's, It's possible to do all sorts of religious activity and nothing's going on in my heart. But it's impossible to have a relationship with God, to know him and be known by him, and not for it to not bear fruit, for it to not have leaves that show. It's going to show. The religion will be real. And why is that? It's because it's a, it's a relationship that actually changes our hearts. It's a relationship that actually changes our motivations. It's a relationship that makes what we're saying sincere. You know, I, had the, I have the privilege this year of being a best man for a couple of very close friends. And uh, this, just, this thought just occurred to me this morning, actually. How strange and awkward it would be uh, if someone that you're not, you don't really have a relationship with, like an acquaintance, asked you to be their best man or asked you to be their maid of honor. Maybe that has happened to some of you. That's kind of a sad situation, actually. But that would be a strange thing. And the strangest part probably would be the speech, Right? If, if, if someone you don't really know that well, just an acquaintance, asked you to be their best man, maid of honor, and you have to give this speech about them, can you imagine how, how stilted it would be, how kind of overly sentimental, just giving very general statements about how great they are, how much you like them? And it would be a strange situation. The heart wouldn't be there. There wouldn't be genuine fruit. That's what Jesus wants, not for you to be an acquaintance. He wants to know you. Jesus doesn't want just people who know about God. He wants people who know God. Jesus wants people to be not just friends of friends, but he wants to be a true friend 
of sinners like you and me. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're hanging out with a group of people where you have your friends, but also some of them are a friend of friend. And you're kind of hanging out and it happens to be where the, the person you actually know, the friend, goes to the bathroom or, or comes late and you end up kind of stuck with the friend of a friend. Has that ever happened to you? That's happened to me on a couple occasions, uh, even like a long drive once where I was stuck with the friend of a friend. And what, what usually happens? Gets a little more quiet. You feel a little more antisocial. You know, there's less laughs. You know, you kind of get in that uh, mechanical, getting to know you mode. And that's not what Jesus wants for you and for me. He doesn't want to be that acquaintance. He doesn't want to be that friend of a friend. And you know, please don't get me wrong as I say all this, as we, as we distinguish leaves from fruit. Once again, leaves are good. They're, those are good things. They're just not good when they're without fruit. Right, so the problem is not religious activity. The problem is not coming to church. The problem is not studying the Bible or learning theology or serving. Those are not the problem. And the reality is, sometimes you're going to have to do those things when you don't really feel like it. That is the sad reality of living in a fallen world. Sometimes you're not going to feel like it. Sometimes your heart's not going to be there. That's, that's all of us. Pastors too, of course. Sometimes you're just not going to feel it, but we just do it anyway. But here's where the problem arises, when we make that into a habit. When we make it into a habit of just doing stuff and doing stuff, and we're not checking our hearts. Where we do all these religious activities, we check off all the list, but we never really ask ourselves, do I know God? It's such a simple question. Do I know God? Do I know him? Or do I just know about him? Is he a, truly a friend to me or just a friend of a friend? And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. We have a God who loves to, who's zealous to, who's even mad about gathering you into relationship with him. He's zealous for that. I love that he quotes Isaiah 56. Right? We already read the Jeremiah quote, but he quotes Isaiah as well. In Isaiah 56, 7, he says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. It's a wonderful passage, actually, because in that passage, we get to see, and of course, when Jesus quotes this, he has that whole passage in mind. When he quotes this, he's saying, look at this beautiful picture of God who gathers you into relationship with him. In Isaiah 56, we see not only Jesus gathering just random people to him, but he gathers the foreigner. He gathers the eunuch to himself into relationship with him. He gathers those who would probably feel very unworthy, those who feel very less than, who feel like maybe they don't belong. He gathers them, the outsider, the disfigured, and he gathers them to himself, into his temple, into his house. I'm just going to read one verse from that passage, verse 5 of Isaiah 56. Here's what God says. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name Better than sons and daughters. I will give them, the foreigners and the eunuchs and all that he gathers, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Basically, this is God saying, I'm going to make you mine. I'm not trying to just make you a people who do stuff. I want to make you mine. So I want to make you someone closer to me, even better than sons and daughters. I know that's hard to imagine because what's closer than that? I'm going to be committed to you. You'll never be cut off. 
This is the God that wants a relationship with you. This is the God who gathers you to himself zealously. And Jesus is zealous for that sort of relationship with you. And here's the thing. We don't walk out of here saying, well, now I have to establish this relationship with God. He wants it so bad. Well, I have to now do all this stuff and establish. No, Jesus is, is doing all that he does with the temple and the fig tree to say, so much of this is futile. I'm the one that's going to establish this relationship with you. I'm the one that's going to pursue you and love you first. Because you see, the temple was the place where God would dwell with his people. Right, the temple's not just a place where you come and do these activities. The temple was supposed to be the place where God dwells with his people. And Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. I love what John says in John chapter one. The word God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus would be that ultimate temple. He would even say about himself, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. He would be the temple that would be destroyed for you so that he could then dwell with you. Jesus would die to dwell with you. He would die. He would take all the punishment for our sin, all the wrath of God as we're gonna celebrate throughout this week and on Good Friday. He would, he would live that perfect life that you and I fail to live, the perfectly obedient, perfectly reverent, perfectly worshipful life that you and I fail to live. Why? He would do all that. Not so you could just do Christian-y stuff. Not so you could just speak Christianese and say all the right Bible study answers. But he would do that to have a relationship. He would do that to dwell with his people. To truly, truly dwell with his people. And until we get that, I really do believe Christian life will feel very fruitless. Or, or I, I imagine for many of you, you have gotten that. You, you do get that. At some point, you did get it. But so often we forget it. We gotta remember it again that my life is not meant to be just activity, but it's meant to be relationship. Not just stuff for him, but stuff with him. And until that happens, it, will, it can easily feel dry. It can easily feel dull. It can easily feel stilted, like that best man speech of the person you don't really know. And, and we all want to bear this fruit. And, and when we know him, when we're known by him, as Paul says, I love what Paul says. He says that you know God. Actually, he corrects himself. Rather, that you're known by God. Right? He knew you first. You're known by him. That's more your identity than you knowing him. You are known by him. And that bears fruit. What fruit can we bear? That leads us to our last question. What fruit can we bear? And we can talk about all sorts of fruit, right? If we, know, if we are regularly enjoying our relationship with God, it's gonna bear so much fruit in life, so much heart, fruit coming from the heart. But today, I just wanna talk about one. I just wanna talk about the first fruit that we can bear. You know, we could talk about, you know, godliness, righteousness, reverence, holiness, humility, the fruit of the spirit. But I just wanna talk about one fruit particularly today. And it's one we see in our passage. And that's the fruit of prayer the fruit of a prayerful heart. After all, Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And you know, in our passage, we didn't read this, but in the rest of Mark 11, after they go back to the fig tree and the disciples say, Rabbi, look at the tree, it's withered, it died because of what you said. You know what Jesus does? He goes into this full-on teaching about prayer. Prayer is a wonderful fruit of our relationship with God. 
It's a wonderful marker. It's a wonderful outpouring, a wonderful exercise of our relationship with God. And I want to tell you this, how we pray and whether or not we pray actually reveals our true beliefs. I'll say that again. How we pray and whether or not we pray reveals our true beliefs. Do you say that God is sovereign? Do you say that, 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 that God is with you and his steadfast love is better than life? Do you say that everything you do is by the power of God, not by my own strength, but by the strength he powerfully works in me? Is that what you believe? Then, it, then you're gonna be praying. How, if you believe those things, how can you not be praying? How can you not be regularly coming to him, clinging to him, walking with him? It's such a basic part of who we are as Christians. And yet, I'll be the first to confess something I so easily neglect. It's such a basic, vital part of our Christian life, and yet, so often, we're not doing it very much or at all. John Piper, one of my favorite pastors, he once wrote, or he once said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Kind of stinging criticism, right? One of you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and all the social media, one thing that, do, that it does for us is you know, on the last day when we, when we see everything so clearly, we'll know it's not that we didn't have time to pray. It's not that we, did, we lacked time. Ironically, uh, John Piper tweeted this, um, but of course, the, his point is not that social media is bad, right? But his point is we have time. We have time. We do. We always do. And, and I want to add to that. We have reason. We have plenty of reason. If we know a God like this, a God who would gather in, a God who would include us like this, a God who, who reaches to the outcast, who reaches to the lowly, who reaches to those who feel unworthy, and he gathers you in by giving of himself, by dying to dwell with you. If we have a God like this, of course we want to pray. We need to pray. We need to. But I also want to add something else. It's written up here. How we pray, yes, how we pray, whether or not we pray, reveals our true beliefs. It's a marker of our relationship with God. But I actually want to add one more layer to that. How we pray and praying, just praying, whether, regardless of how you do it, just praying deepens our true beliefs. Prayer deepens the relationship. It deepens the intimacy it's like, it's like most relationships, whether we're talking about friendship or family or spouse. It's this wonderful cycle, isn't it, where you enjoy the fruits of the relationship. These natural fruits often come out. Quality time, service to one another, sacrificial giving, uh, you know, acts of kindness for married couples, sex. These are wonderful fruit of the relationship. And yet... These are also wonderful things that deepen the relationship. And sometimes you don't even feel like doing those things. right? Sometimes you don't always feel like uh, spending quality time with certain people. You don't always feel like uh, giving acts of kindness. And sorry to burst your bubble for those who are single. You don't always feel like having sex with your spouse. Shocking, isn't it? It's not like the movies. You don't always feel like it. But when you do it, when you do those things, when you, do, when, you, when you enjoy those wonderful fruits of those relationships, even when perhaps you may not really feel like it, if the relationship is real, 
then it melts your heart. If the relationship is real, even when you kind of don't feel like it, it deepens your intimacy. You should try it. Right? Try it. For, for non-married folks, not the sex part, but everything else. It deepens your intimacy. It's this wonderful cycle. You, you, these fruits are markers of the intimacy and relationship, but they're also cultivators. They're, they're, they deepen the relationship and intimacy. And I have to say it, if you're never praying, if you're just never praying, if, if it's just so, something that's so not on your radar, I'm, I'm afraid to say, you have to ask yourself, do I know God? Do I actually know him? But perhaps, perhaps you really do. And perhaps all you need is just, you, you need to go back to him. You need, you, need, you need to go back to him in prayer and, and remember what it is to know him. Remember what it is, the joy of being known by him, that his steadfast love is sweeter than life. And it will deepen that intimacy. Church, I implore you guys, let's get away from the hustle and bustle. I'm sure of this, that all of you have hustle and bustle in your life. Whether you don't have to be in a temple to have hustle and bustle. And I implore you, let's get away from that. Let's put your phone down for a moment. Get away from your kids for a moment. <laughs> I'm sure you're trying to anyway. And just spend some time with the Lord. Linger in his presence. I love how one pastor said that. Linger in prayer. Just spend some time with him. And I guarantee you, you're gonna, that's a wonderful fruit of the relationship, but it's actually a fruit that bears more fruit. I guarantee you that when you linger with the Lord, you will become stronger. You will develop a strength that you didn't have before. I can promise that, because I know God. I know what he's all about. I know what he's like. And of course, I can promise that because Jesus himself said it in the rest of Mark 11. When he talks, when he teaches on prayer, he says, you'll have a faith that can move mountains. You'll be unshakable. You know, it's not, you know, some of the most resilient people I know in this life are also people that are the most prayerful. You think that's a coincidence? In prayer, when we linger with the Lord, when we, when we exercise and, and enjoy and cherish the relationship we have with him, not just the religious activities, it gives you a peace that transcends understanding. It gives you a faith that can move mountains. And in summary, as we close, I just, I just want to go over our questions again. What, why was Jesus so mad again? Why, why did he get so mad? It's because he doesn't just want religious leaves without the fruit. He doesn't just want leaves on the outside and no fruit on the inside. But when you do have fruit, you will have leaves too. How can you not? And secondly, how do we bear that fruit? Please, please don't go out of here and just say, well, now I have to just do all this stuff for him <laughs> to have a relationship with him. That's actually going back to the same problem. Right? How do we have this relationship with him? It's, it's just receiving the relationship he's already established with you. It's receiving and, 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 and cherishing and taking in the fact that he would love you first, that he would die to dwell with you, that he would make a way, that he would become that temple for you. And in fact, that actually makes you into the temple of God as we read in the New Testament. And lastly, what fruit can we bear? There's so much fruit we could bear. But how about we start with prayer? Can we at least start with that? Can we bear some prayer? Because that fruit is a marker. It is. It's a marker of your real relationship with God. But it's also a deepener. It's also a cultivator.
Church, I don't know what you guys personally like to do during Passion Week. You know, we have different practices. Some people like to fast during Passion Week. Some people uh, like to read through the scriptures, particularly pertaining to that last week of Jesus' life. People do different things. We're not going to enforce any one particular way. But I want to ask of you, I want to beg of you, as you celebrate this Passion Week, as you live through this Passion Week, and really more than just this week for your Christian life, please remember we, God did all these things. He made the way. He paved that path. He died on that cross. Not for you to do stuff. Just do stuff. Just, just come to church. Just read the Bible. Just do it. No, he came to know you. He died to dwell with you. And would that be what changes your heart? Would that be what makes you into an a, a empowered, fruit-bearing people that's why Jesus did it that's why he did it he did he did it to make you his own he did it to gather you into himself and when he does that you don't leave the same because he died to dwell with you let's pray Lord we are thankful for your initiating love but we're thankful that you are the one who establishes that relationship with us, who gathers us in by the blood of your cross, by the righteousness of your life and through your resurrection. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people who just cultivate leaves. Oh, Lord, that's the last thing we want. Lord, make us a people who know you and are rather known by you, who celebrate and cherish and live that out. And would that be what makes fruit and leaves on the inside and the outside? Help us, we pray. Oh, we need your grace and mercy for for that sort of change. We need your Holy Spirit for that sort of heart change. Thank you, Lord, that you're zealous for us. You're zealous to make that happen. We praise you, we love you. Would you be with us this Passion Week? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.